Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 23rd, 2020. This is episode 2695 of the Survival Podcast, which means we'll end next week with episode 2700. That sounds pretty cool. Um, been doing this a long time. For those of you that are new to the show, just found it today. I hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. Um, we are a solutions-based podcast here at the Survival Podcast. Those that are long-time listeners have been listening since some of you all since 2008. No, we've been in the business of solutions uh, over problems uh, from the very beginning. We'll talk about problems, but only so we can define them so that we can find solutions in your own life. And sometimes the problem's like, we can't fix this thing for everybody. But maybe we can either fix the problem for ourselves or at least mitigate the problem for ourselves. And I got a lot of stuff like that today. Today's going to be a listener feedback show. We haven't done one of these in a while. This is where I take things that some of, sometimes it's things you guys email me. And sometimes, like today, my first one is going to be something I've been getting a lot of questions from a lot of people on one way or a flavor or another uh, on social media. And so the feedback shows can come from a variety of sources. But if you want to specifically email me, And give me an article to comment on, give me a story to talk about, ask me a question, anything like that. Just send the email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and make sure one way or another you put TSPC in the subject line. That means even if it goes two weeks in the spam box, sooner or later I will get my ass into gear, uh, dig through the spam box and I'll find it and I'll read it. It may not be on the air, but I read every email you guys send, um, except this email. I'm going to tell you the one email not to send me if you want me to read it. Jack, I know your time is valuable. And then following that is 50,000 words. I don't read that one because even if I would have read the 50,000 words when you put it that way and then give me 50,000 words, I don't think you meant what you said, so I don't read it. Everybody else, I at least skim your email and take it in. And I use it in the show, and I use it in all my other communications one way or another because it becomes part of my knowledge set, and I appreciate all of you. I feel like I have a, a group out there of over 200,000-plus people who are my research team. And so even if you don't hear back from an email, know that I value it. Know that I value it. And if you hear back from me from an email and I basically say, that's dumb, don't be upset. I responded to you because I cared enough to do so. Anyway... Uh, with that, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today first, give you kind of the bullet points for the day. The one question I'm getting left and right from people, I'm getting it on Parlay or Parler, depending on how you want to say it or how you want to pronounce it, but it's Parlay. Um, I'm getting it on Twitter. I'm getting it on Facebook. And I usually don't get the same thing on all three platforms, but I'm getting it right now. I want to buy rural land. You say real estate crash is coming. People are hauling ass out of the cities, just like you said was going to happen two months ago. It's driving up rural land prices and rural home prices. What do I do? Do I wait for the second wave of the crash? Do I buy now? What do I do? That will be answered with it depends, but we will try to determine what it depends on and give you the best answer to figure out what you should do because I don't know what you should do. I know the rules of what's going on and what I would do if I were in various different scenarios. So I'll try to cover that for you. I have a question on something that's very common. It comes in a bunch of different ways, but it's the dilemma of working for the government when you oppose the government. 
People that want to be agorists or gorists, you know, they, they want to be libertarian. They want to be anarchists. They want to build a, a stateless society. But right now they also have to feed their family, and they have a pretty good job one way or another in, in government. And I'll talk about that. Um, the homeschool wave, I'm going to say, is now here. We won't see how big that wave is. It's a tsunami. I've been telling you this all summer long that it's coming. Kids are just getting ready to quote-unquote go back to school, even though in many instances they're not going back to school. They're going to do virtual school at home because the school people are afraid to open the schools irrationally, in, in, in my opinion, but regardless, that's happening. However, what I've been saying is it's not going to just be people virtual schooling, which means you're using the state's curriculum in your home, following their rules their way. That once you put people in that position and they start researching alternatives that the number of people who are going to completely exit the system or exit it as far as they can for their state is going to be overwhelming somewhere in the number of 5 million on the bottom end to 15 million on the top end in the next school year. Well, North Carolina has a homeschool registration website. This is not for parents doing the virtual school. This is for parents that file a notice of intent. We're leaving you. Goodbye. It's for your goodbye letter and where you agree to certain stipulations that North Carolina has that are pretty stringent on homeschooling, the, the website crashed. More on that when we get to it. Green tea extract is something I've recommended in my nutritional regimen for mitigation, prevention, uh, immune building against potential RNA replicating viruses like COVID, SARS-2, known as COVID-19 to many, even though that's not actually an accurate way to define it. And I have a question on what exactly does green tea extract do? Is it the same as just green tea that you drink? Like, what is this thing all about and why is it there? Um, I am going to tell you a little bit about a new look I'm taking at vitamin D. I will probably be doing a show in the near future on vitamin D. The whole uh, show will be about it. Uh, but it regards some research that I've uncovered. Uh, some things I've started to look at with COVID that have led me down one of my research paths to things way beyond just COVID. Um, why I think it may not be um, excessive to say that the United States of America and the Western world as a whole is in the middle of a vitamin D um, uh, epidemic. Like there is a scarcity of vitamin D in the average person's blood uh, that is causing or aggravating, or part of the cause of many of our modern health problems. That we have an epidemic of vitamin D deficiency in the United States. And many of you who think you're not deficient in vitamin D, if you would go get your blood serum tested, you are. I'm in the sun every day. So are all the other people that my doctor treats that he tests for vitamin D who are deficient in vitamin D. So is the doctor that wrote the book I'm going to tell you about today, who is in Laredo, Texas. And I'll tell you some ways you're going to need to look at vitamin D from here on out and how it may change your paradigm. And I'll give you some cautions because I do not have full recommendations yet. Okay? Um, I have a question on what the long game is for an, an agorist, agorist business. What, what do you, if you're going to do uh, the type of agorism that we talked about this week on Tuesday, was either Tuesday or Monday that I did a show on it, if you're going to do that, what's the long game look like? How does a business continue if it's operating outside of the state's system? How does that look? How does that work? I mean, it, it's a legitimate question because there's certain things that we want to do in modern society that if you don't have like a tax return with enough money on it, it's really hard or impossible to do. And that's why I'm going to come at this from a what you call a blended approach, which is kind of what I thought I presented on Monday. 
And then I want to talk a little bit today at the end of the show on how the current crisis is being used by the real people in power so that you can recognize it and realize what you can and you can't do about it. Because there's no sense in convincing people that they can do something and that thing will matter if it doesn't. I, I always compare that type of approach to a fly in a windowsill. If you get a fly in a windowsill and he focuses on that window and his little fly brain can't process what a piece of glass is, no matter how hard he tries, he can't go through that window. And all he has to do to be free is turn 180 degrees around and fly off through the house. But we all have seen flies drop dead in windowsills and just lay there and kick their last kicks and die. And it wasn't because they didn't try hard. Well, when you convince somebody to take actions that do not help them, that will not make the change they're looking for, you're basically sentencing them to a very long life of being a fly in a window. And I don't want that for you. So I want you to make the most of your dash. And then we're going to end with a song that really drives that home, that once again, John Adam nailed the synergy of the show without knowing it, and it's pretty cool. So let's start out, though, by reminding you guys that if you like this show and the work that I do, the number one way you can make sure that I will always be here to help you learn more and to do more and to bring you solutions is join the MSB. That's all I'll say about that today. And please consider joining. Get the discounts. Use them. Get your money back. That's how simple it is. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. And now let's go into our quote of the day. Um, as many of you know or will be shocked to learn if you're new to the show today, I am a great big scary word. I'm an anarchist. I am not one of the clowns that you see on TV burning shit, and those people are not anarchists. That is not anarchy. That is, th those people are fascists and communists, and they're like really confused because they're fascist communists which is like saying oily water, right? It's, but it, they really do come from the same, the same place from a system of control and a same desire for the state to be that means of control. And they just are, it's, it's basically the same ideology sold by two different uh, means with slightly different ways that the economic systems run. Those are not anarchists. So when I tell you I'm an anarchist, don't equate me with those assholes. Uh, another word for what I am, and a word I actually prefer to anarchist because the word has been so destroyed, is a voluntarist. I believe that all actions between people should be consensual. That's, that's what I actually believe. When I say I'm an anarchist, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm saying that two people should decide how they act with each other, and nobody should be able to use force and coercion to interfere with that or to cause the action to happen if they don't want it to happen which most people actually agree with. They just don't understand how that it can be done. And so when you bring these things up and you talk about solutions that, that move the state out, what always happens is the person says, but if you do that, then this bad thing will occur. Ignoring the hundreds of bad things that occur every day with the state system in place. In fact, ignoring the hundreds of things that happen bad all the time because of the state's system. And so it's what you call a utopia fallacy. Or a nirvana fallacy. If I can find anything wrong, anything wrong with your proposed solution, your pro proposed solution in total is wrong. Where When we actually evaluate that, what I've always said is, if my proposed solution has less negative than the current system, it's worthy of consideration. If it has equal negative, but we can do it without stealing from people and without imposing our will on others, if it's equally bad, 
It's better. And I found a quote that really drives that point home. It's by a guy named Lewis Mumford. And he said, Utopias rest on the fallacy that perfection is a little legitimate goal of human existence. Utopias rest on the fallacy that perfection is a legitimate goal of human existence. No human system has ever been perfect, nor will it be. That's, that's another way of saying the same thing. No system designed by humans has ever been perfect, nor will it ever be. So we can try to do our best, but if we are striving for utopia, if we are striving for perfection in any system run by humans that are innately flawed as beings, we will fall short of that goal. So it's not even worth having. The goal should never be utopia. It should be to do the least harm with the least theft and the least coercion. And I just want to come at this today and tell you, when I, when I talk about agorism, when I talk about anarchism, when I talk about true libertarianism, when I talk about voluntary association, when I talk about all those things, that's where I'm coming from. And it has never been the libertarian, even the minarchist, the anarchist, the agorist, it has never been the free-thinking individual who has ever promised you a utopia. It's only been the people who have been in power from the dawn of civilization until now and have never achieved it. Think about that before you ever defend them ever again, just because we have to have them. All right, so let's start off with this question again. This has come to me in a variety of forms from a variety of people in a variety of places. You say, Jack, that real estate prices are beginning to crash. When you look at all the coastal cities, the big cities, etc., especially tech-centric cities and the cities that have underlying deep-seated social problems uh, like homeless people shitting on people's front steps of their businesses, riots, etc., you're absolutely right. People are bailing out. So when I look in my little small town, insert name here, right now real estate prices are going through the roof. They're exploding. There is, there is a shortage of property. These people are they're doing exactly what you said, so it's driving up rural prices. I don't own a place yet, and I want to. I want to get out of the city, too, or I want to move a little further out of the city, or I live in a rural area, but I want to upgrade my existence. I want a bigger house, a bigger piece of land, etc. What the hell do I do? Do I buy? Because you're also saying that eventually this will touch everywhere, that you have a, when a real estate market goes down, it, it, it is widespread due to a, a massive problem like this. Eventually, everybody suffers. And I, I do believe that. I also do believe your rural areas will be somewhat insulated from this direct effect. Okay, But the other problem is when you have a massive recession, then you have real estate prices drop everywhere. The other problem is, so you have like, again, I always make up this town that I don't believe actually exists. People have told me Sheboygan exists, right? But nobody's ever actually found for me Sheboyganville. So it, I try to use that because... It's you know, what made me think of it is a, a show called Mr. Deeds, a, a movie with Adam Sandler, and this lady makes up a town and it's like Westchester Tintinfieldville or something like that. She comes up with this thing he'll never possibly find it because it doesn't exist, and then it does, right? So Sheboyganville, so Sheboyganville has its real estate prices going up because people from California and Washington and wherever else are bailing out and found this little hamlet to be a nice place to go. And it doesn't take that much because there's only so much inventory in a place like Sheboyganville. You know, maybe on, a, on any given day there's a hundred homes for sale. But in the, the, the range, because remember, all buyers are settlers. If you don't understand that about real estate, you understand nothing about real estate. 
So the real quick lesson in that is anybody that's going to buy a home is going to have a budget, say $200,000. And when they say $200,000, they mean I go to $210,000 if the bank says it's okay, and I'll go down to $190,000. But in my mind, what I can afford is this much, and I don't want to go much under it because I can't get what I'm looking for if I go under it. I want the best I can get, which sets the stage for settling. So they look at all the houses in a zip code, region, etc. that are in that price range that meet their other basic criteria. I want three bedrooms, two baths, at least a quarter acre yard. Right? So they look at all of them. And none of them will have everything that they want or they even expect at $200,000. And some will be $2049 and some will be $199.6 and whatever. As long as the bank will say yes, whichever house is 1% better than the other houses they will buy. That's how I sell and buy properties on that rule. The 1% effect. I wrote a book with Dustin DeFrist about it. Okay? And I've been very successful with, with my own individual real estate. I'm not an investor. I'm not a flipper. I just buy really smart and I sell really smart when I get a new house. And I've done that over and over and over again in the middle of recessions. And it's on that 1% effect. And that 1% effect happens the best of markets and the worst of markets. It doesn't mean you can't overpay. It just means that's what's going on. So if you have... That, and then the 1% subjective. So if there's 25 houses in Sheboyganville in the 190 to 225 demographic, then about four or five of them are in the 1% effect for some prospective buyer. You bring three or four more buyers that normally wouldn't be in Sheboyganville into Sheboyganville, and you start a bidding war for those properties, and, it, and the, the rising tide floats all boats, all the prices go up. This is the danger. That exodus into Sheboyganville is not sustainable. Eventually, all the people that can or will move and will choose Sheboyganville will have done that. Sheboyganville's real estate is artificially inflated. And remember, Sheboyganville is any town USA that meets this demographic requirement. And eventually, that artificial inflation of the prices will stop, and it will have its own bubble. Now, the bubble won't be as severe as the L.A. bubble that cause the exodus, but it will drop. What does this mean for you? It means that it's more important right now than ever that you buy property that is in what I call the 10% effect. So the 1% effect is how you sell a property. The 10% effect is how you buy a property. You're looking for the property that for no reason other than lazy-ass people selling it shows at the bottom 10% or 10% worse than the average. So the carpet's shit, and, and instead of replacing it, the owner says, we'll do a $1,500 carpeting allowance. Those houses don't sell worth a the shit. They don't. And I know you're going to tell me, well, right now in my town, those houses are selling too. Okay, then you look a little further out, you look a little harder. Because now those properties aren't in the 10%, they're in like the 2 or 3% below the mean. You want the property that's inexpensive and easy to fix. It doesn't have a foundation cracked in half. The roof is not falling off of it. Or if it needs a new roof, there's nothing actually structurally wrong with the roof. You need somebody to come out, rip the shingles off, and put new shingles on it for $1,500 to $2,500. Right? That's what you're looking for right now. You want to be a little outside of where everybody's hitting, you want a little bit more wrong, and you want to buy, your budget needs to be where you are very comfortable with the price. And I would say this to you right now. If you want to buy right now, 
look at your house and say, I'm going to be in this house at least 10 years. If you can afford what you're buying, you don't overbuy in, in what you can afford, you have some cash reserve, and you don't want to sell your house in the next five to 10 years, you're probably fine. As long as you don't get stupid and start chasing bids. Go find the house people are not bidding on. That, that's been on the market for 30 days. There aren't any. Bullshit. Okay? Just to be honest with you, bullshit. You're not looking hard enough. You're like the person that goes to the... There's a state park in, in Arkansas where you can go pay like 10 bucks and you can find diamonds in the park. And the biggest diamond that anybody ever found there, the most valuable one ever, was found in a parking lot. Like I got kicked over some rocks. And there it is. And you go to that park and you say, there's no diamonds here. It's not worth it. And, and, and some little kid comes out with five. He looked harder than you. Real estate is not something to be emotional with, but it's also not something to be trivial with. And so if you want to buy now, you need to be buying with the intent that you are developing, developing the property long term. And there is a risk that some of these Sheboyganvilles will thrive. And if that's the one you have your heart set on, the property can continue to go up and stabilize above where it is now. And now is actually an optimum time to buy. There's also the potential that that bubble will be unsustainable and your Sheboyganville's bubble will pop and drop prices down. Again, that is only bad if you want to sell your property. If you don't want to sell your property, it's kind of like saying, well, I'm holding some stock and it went down in value, so I lost $10,000 last year. If you didn't sell the stock and you have no need to sell the stock and you have no intention to sell the stock and the company's not going bankrupt, you've lost nothing. And you, if, you, if you're not ready to think that way about real estate, honest to God, you're not ready to put your money into real estate. You're really not. But you're, you're going to find that more and more you're going to find because people are going to get very good at the rent game. That it, rent is going to be so optimized in price, it will only make sense to rent if you know your short term, okay, or you can't buy. That's going to be the only places it's going to make sense in the rural markets. Now, in the cities, for a long time, renters are about to be handled a huge, huge advantage. A huge advantage. So a strategy where there's an exodus now, of rent, buy time, and buy will probably work. Maybe. We'll see. But do you really want to be there? Because my, my contention is get out. Get out, get out, get out, get out. Get out of the city. Now. Today. Like, that doesn't mean pack your shit up and run away. Ah! But today, start planning to get the hell out of these cities because they are going to turn into terminal shitholes in the next couple years. And... I don't like that. I don't want to be right about that. And I'm the one that's been calming people down for the last five years, saying things are going to be better than we think. This fire that got lit had gasoline and kerosene thrown out at the same time, and it's burning and it's raging right now, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. And the only way you should be living in a city right now that you don't want to get out of, if it's growing during this time, It will become, now you've got to decide whether you want to be there when it happens. It's going to become one of the new, highly successful cities for growth in the country. There will be new Chicago's, new L.A.'s, and new New York cities when this is over with. 
And I'm not even going to begin to stake my prediction on them, but I'm going to tell you there are cities that while, while New York, L.A., Chicago, Seattle, Portland decline in population will grow. And so they, will, they probably will be the Dallas-Fort Worth area. They probably will be Austin. They probably will be Jacksonville. I don't know. I'm not sure on that one yet. But it, it, like, there's not a lot. The growth is going to be in your small to mid-sized towns. They're gonna, you're going to have more... You know, there's these towns in, in like Wisconsin. They're not that big, but they're really, really affluent and successful people in them. They're going to get their asses beat because of their excessive bubble. But you're going to have a lot of new, let's say, Madison, Wisconsin's. And I know, like, some of you are going, man, you know the people that live there, the yuppie asshole. I, that's not what I mean. I mean the affluency and the growth and the resources. A lot of these towns that are just a little less than that are going to turn into that, and it's going to be for every one city that, right, there's going to be ten of those. But there's also going to be a few that become the new megacities built on a new paradigm. And you'll be the, the longer this goes, the more you'll be able to identify them. Just be very careful what you buy right now. So my next one is the dilemma question that I've answered many times, and I'm sure I'll answer many times again. So this one did come in an email. It came from Ben, and Ben said, How do I reconcile my desire to do what is right in terms of my wish to live in a stateless society with my obligation to provide for my family to pay our bills by working for the state? I work in IT support for various Louisiana state agencies. I'm 60 years old with a wife and a 12-year-old child. I earn a decent salary, and at least for now, job security does not seem to be an issue, which is important to someone my age. I was working in IT in the oil field when the price of oil took a nosedive in 2016. It took me a year of being unemployed to find a job that I was able to land in the state of Louisiana. I embrace the tenets of anarchy and non-aggression principle. I believe that agorism is a moral, ethical right, and I'm excited to motivate it by the new Unloose the Goose podcast. I also understand that my salary comes from government-forced taxes, which goes against the non-aggression principle. I have worked as an entrepreneur for 20 years of my life, but 20 of those were very hard years, and I barely scraped by. I take full responsibility for my business failing, but I wish I would have had access to your business advice during those years. Thanks for all you do, Ben. Okay, look, so first of all, I begrudge nobody for working for government, especially if what you're doing isn't directly harming somebody. And I guess you could say, well, if you work in IT, you enable the systems of the cop. I mean, come on. Like, and then there is a reality, like there's a pragmatism. So you're a 60-year-old man, and so how many how many more years are you probably going to work anyway? I mean, if you work till 70, you're talking about 10 more years. So the, you do have to look at this differently than a 24-year-old. If you said I was a 24-year-old, I would say stop bitching and figure out something to do with yourself if you don't like where you're at. 60 with a family and well-paid with benefits? You are right. To be concerned, I would still say it does not hurt to see if there is some opportunity. Because I'll tell you something about the one year of unemployment. It will be easier, except for the fact that there's a recession going on, right? But if we, if we equalize, it will be easier right now for you to find a job than it was when you didn't have one. You might be like, how can that possibly be? Because as an employer no matter how righteous it is that you've lost your job, no matter how wrong it was that it happened to you, no matter how, how much it wasn't your fault, no matter what, human nature is you have a bit of a stigma. 
I have other people that are interviewing with me for this job that you want that have a job somewhere else right now. They're so good that they actually are out there looking for a job when they already have one. Now, I might also have some, if their, if their resume has enough movement in it and I'm looking for stability, I might be a little bit more concerned. But I have the opportunity to steal somebody who's so good they work for somebody else right now. Or I can hire somebody who lost their job. So you're more marketable than you were when you didn't have a job. You have all the other things. And I'm not going to tell somebody that when you're 60, it's not harder to find a job than when you're 35. Because I'd be lying. And I'm not going to lie. right? I'm not going to tell you there's not a stigma there. That if I'm an employer and I'm thinking i got an energetic 28-year-old versus this kind of old guy. right? I'm getting to be an old guy myself. So, I, I you know. And, and there's some truth. Though. We, we might be a little bit wiser, but we move a little slower. And we're a little harder to manage because we give a little bit less of a shit. And every year, like once you hit 60, you don't give a shit as much as you did when you were 30 to like kowtowing to somebody. And that gets worse every year. And that's part of the equation that goes on too. But you might just look around and see what else is available. My other thing would be, so trying to pay all your bills as an entrepreneur was difficult for you. Maybe you're not cut out for it. Doesn't mean maybe there's not some other things you can't start doing. And then you have to start looking at your transition to retirement and what that looks like. At 60, you need to be thinking about like, well, how much longer am I going to work? What does my retirement look like? And honest to God, if it was me and I was in your case, instead of trying to figure out by 60, okay, just to accept the reality you gave me. Instead of trying to figure out, well, how do I transition to my career? I would be looking at how do I end it? So if I'm going to have right now, if I just follow the plan, plan A, I'm going to work until I'm 72. I want to the next thing I want to do, I want a plan B that gets me retired by 68. And once I work the kinks out of that plan, I'm looking for a plan that gets me done by 65. And I'm going to keep pushing that number south as long as I can. And that might include, I'm going to do this part-time thing. And it might even be a part-time entrepreneurial thing to make a small amount of money in my retirement. And that way, you're walking away because you're in, you're in the exit zone. You're not in the exit You're not in the doorway. You're not even like right under the sign. You're not even like standing in a line waiting for the dumbass in front of you to leave so you can leave too, right? But you've you've moved over into that area of exit. You can see the sign. And all I'm saying is maybe you in a very intelligent way financially hasten that exit, especially since what you have to do now runs counter to your beliefs. The other side of that is your computer technician. If you didn't do that job, somebody else would. You're not out enforcing cannabis regulations in Louisiana, which are still ridiculous, even compared to Texas, which is ridiculous, right? You're not doing that. You're paid with tax money. So is half the damn country one way or another. A lot of people that are all proud, I work for the private sector, you, you drill down and who they work for, they work for a some company that derives the vast majority of its money from either direct government contract or direct government subsidy. One guy was so proud that he works for a private company. It turned out he worked for a very large manufacturer of farm equipment. And I was able to show him really quick that almost all the equipment that they sold, if it was not for the current subsidization of our farm system, their entire market would not even be sustainable that they're selling new equipment to farmers before the old equipment is really no longer useful, only because there's a system set up of perpetuated debt through subsidization 
that allows that to happen. So that person is working as much for the beast as you are. There, there's very few things where you can truly say you're working totally outside of the system. And almost all of them are entrepreneurial. And that means that they're probably not in your future, not just due to your age, but because if you're, you, I can read through your, your email, you don't want to do that. And dude, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. It's, it, it's, I don't know that I could build what I've built if I stayed an employee till today. Or if I had had early weak success as an entrepreneur, given up and went and taken a job and now turned, I don't know that I could do it and I'm, I'm 10 years your junior. Right? So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna judge that. You know, that's something we judge for ourselves and we don't judge it harshly, we judge it pragmatically. And that's what I would say to anybody in this. You have to be a pragmatist. You have to be a pragmatist. If you're young and you're working for government, use that shit so that you can work against government. If you're aged and you're heading toward retirement, then use the cushness of that employment to get into retirement more swiftly if you possibly can. All right? So I know that's going to make some people that are purists angry, but everything makes purists angry because... When you're not realistic, you're going to be angry. <laughs> All right. Next up, um, Rose said, I wanted to share this article with you and the TSP family. Bottom line up front, North Carolina parents crashed the school website because so many were filing the homeschool. This is um, vindication for me. It really is because I've been saying this is coming. And what I really want to read to you out of the article is one very small piece of the article that's the most important thing that most people would gloss over. And it's in the very first paragraph. Raleigh, North Carolina, July 7, 2020. The increasing willingness of parents in North Carolina to homeschool their children has led to the online system for filing a notice of intent to establish a homeschool being temporarily overwhelmed. Quote, the system is not currently available due to an overwhelming submission of notices of intent. The website explained to visitors the evening hours of July 1st. Okay, so the rest of the article is not necessary. Notice of intent to establish a homeschool. That's the most important thing. Because there are two ways that you move your child's learning to your house. And one is you invite the beast into your home in the form of some type of virtual school. In Texas, right now, with COVID, every school district's offering its own form of virtual school. The t same teachers that your kid would go to class with are involved and they're basically just putting the lessons online and they've probably gotten a little bit better on that over the summer because when it started they had no plan. There's also the um, versions that are available through like K12.com. So people hear K12.com and they think, oh, well, that's like it's, it's your homeschool. K12.com is made up mostly of what are your options for schooling at home from your state in your state. So, for instance, uh, Texas Can Academy is one of our options at K-12, which is an online charter school. And there's, like, three other ones that we can do as well. They all allow us to basically bring the state to our home. And, but instead of being the local district, it's the, the big state, the whole state. Like, or it's some district that made a special thing that they made available throughout the state. And then there is actual homeschooling, where you choose and administer your own curriculum as you so choose. 
In our case, we're using a thing called Excellus Academy. At least I'm hoping that my, because I'm still dealing with the humming and hawing from my grand, my son and my daughter-in-law. But I think we're, I think we're past that now. Um, and that could be you roll your own. Some people will do things like they use Khan Academy for their mathematics because it's free and it's perfect for, for people to want to do that. And they might use a company uh, that provides books and lesson plans for social studies and grammar and a different company that does, you know, um, let's say uh, science. And they roll their own that way. And maybe they even bring religious studies into it or what have you. Some people unschool. So like, but any of those things, what makes them all the same is thank you for the option of continuing to do business with you state, insert name here, Louisiana, North Carolina, Texas, whatever. I am declining that offer. And I will be doing this on my own in my own way. Different states have different levels of oversight. North Carolina, basically, you have to have your child take a standardized test once a year. That information has to go to the state, and they have the ability to inspect what you're doing at any time. State of Texas, bye-bye, go away, piss off, I don't want to talk to you, is good enough. I'm doing this now, I have a homeschool, goodbye. You have to state your intent to teach your four core curriculum items but they don't check to see if you do it. Now, it behooves you to do it because you want to keep options open for your student so it makes it easier for them to you know, get into college if that's what they want to do or, or go back to school if they decide they want to go back to the state system if they make that decision. So most people do it. Okay. But what this website crash was is not people saying, oh, I'm going to virtual school. This notice of intent is the key. There were so many people saying, I'm leaving, bye-bye. They broke the website. I told you, a wave was coming. A wave. And when I tell you something with that level of confidence, rest assured always, I am not pulling it out of my ass. I'm not just fabricating this idea. Or it's not just because I want it to be true. Because I, I, I'll admit, I want it to be true. And when I want something to be true, I am harder on myself. Not easier on myself, improving my case and being sure that I'm right. And the writing is on the wall to the point where it is basically chiseled writing carved into a stone wall that this is coming. This shows that it's real. This is one state. And it's a state that's actually difficult to homeschool in compared to Florida or Texas. I'm telling you, in September... The state is going to start to lose its mind because the full realization of what's happening is going to begin to sink in. Right now, the state is in stage three. Stage three of grief, which is bargaining. That's where they are. They're like halfway between bargaining and the fourth stage, which is depression. Depressed people can be dangerous. Not all depressed people are, but a depressed beast can be dangerous. And they're about halfway in between because the bargaining is, we'll give you the option of virtual schooling. Oh, thank you for giving me the option of something I've always had the option to. I really appreciate that. When somebody gives you the option to do something you always could have done, they, they have nothing left. So they're pretending that they're doing something for you. They're pretending that they're doing something for you. Imagine that you had a job where you were paid a salary plus commission and you became dissatisfied with your job, and you just closed a big deal, and the company you work for says, 
But you know what we're going to do, Bob? Um, because you worked so hard on this, we're going to pay you a commission on it. But you were already going to pay me a commission on it. Basically, they're saying, we don't have any more money and we don't want you to leave. We got nothing left. So we're, and if you think that's stupid that no comp, I had that happen with a company. We're going to pay you commission on this one. And I wasn't in a sales position. I was in a marketing position, but because I could sell, they had, they had promised me that from the beginning. There was another salesperson that kind of opened the door there, but he couldn't do it. I went in and I closed it. It was my deal. And they acted like they were doing me a favor. I promptly left that company. I promptly left. And in fact, the reason they made that stupid offer, which wasn't an offer, it was just the truth of, of what they were supposed to do anyway, was I had already accepted another job, and they couldn't match the money. And they were saying, well, imagine if you get more of these. Oh, you're good enough to pay me under the contract we already had? Oh, okay. And that's what the schools are doing. You have an option. Like Texas is saying that right now to parents. You have the option of homeschooling. No shit, Charlotte. Really? I appreciate you telling me that I have an option to do something I have a right to do. I, and that's the other thing. I mean, you, you, you basically, in, in a lot of states that are saying you, it's optional, you can do this now, will let you. You don't just have the ability to. You don't just have the option to. You have and have had the right to. And they're pretending that they're being magnanimous by letting you use their curriculum at home. And yet it's not working. It's coming. It's coming hard, guys, and it is going to have all the disruption that I put out in my shows on it and my article about it. And it's going to, ma ma it's going to magnify the migration pattern and the real estate crash. And anybody that says otherwise is just in denial of reality. I'm sorry. Next up, Roy emails me and he said, Can you clarify what green, eat, green tea extract is, where to get it, uh, and that you recommend it as part of your zinc ionophore regime? Is this just the same thing as making plain green tea? It doesn't say extract on the packaging, so that makes me think it's something else. Um, so, yeah, let's shortcut that and do this one really quick. So, green tea extract is what it sounds like. It is an extract, in other words, a, concentra a concentrate of green tea. So, if you make green tea, you buy green tea leaves and steep them and drink it, it's not the same thing. And it is something that you can take too much of. I think it's around a third caffeine. And it is, the balance of it is mostly something, it's like ethyl something glutamate or something, like lotomate or something like that. And that's the actual ionophore. Does that exist in green tea that you drink? Yes. Does it exist at the concentration it does in a single tablet or capsule of green tea extract? No, it does not. No, it does not. Quisertin is also an ionophore for zinc. And what that means for those that are new to this is when you take zinc, and even if you take a lot of zinc, a very small amount of it gets inside your cells, inside the cell wall. Cell walls are what are called a semi-permeable membrane, meaning some things can pass through and some things can't, and some things can pass through with some additional component, process, adjunct, additive, what have you, right? So some things will go through a semi-permeable membrane by our old friend osmosis, Things move down the concentration gradient to create equilibrium. So if there's a lot on the outside and a little on the inside, it will passively move into the cell until you get kind of an equilibrium. That's osmosis. Well, zinc doesn't do that. In fact, it takes a lot of energy to get zinc in the cell. So the body only brings as much zinc to the party inside the cell as the body thinks it needs. But if you get zinc inside a cell, when a virus is there, specifically an RNA or an mRNA, messenger RNA replicating virus, which COVID and many other viruses are. 
it disrupts the viral replication process to the point, at, in some instances, that it'll literally shut it down. But even if it doesn't shut it down, it slows it down. How much? Depends on how much zinc, what your body's like, what virus it is, but it's a good thing. So when we take zinc, because we have, it's cold and flu season, because COVID, because whatever, if we don't have an ionophore with it, then we're not going to get the zinc inside the cell wall. Or we'll get a very small amount of zinc inside the cell wall. So we take a bunch more zinc, we only get a little tiny bump inside the cell. So it can only have a little tiny effect. We put an ionophore with it, we accelerate that process. The only reason I include green tea along with the quercetin is in all the research that I've been able to find where they tested the ionophore capability of quercetin for zinc, they included this green tea extract. I only take one in the morning of the green tea extract. You can over-caffeinate yourself, and it's used mainly as a weight loss supplement, and you can take too much of it, and it can be toxic. And if you have any adverse reaction to it, toss it and stick to quercetin and zinc. Okay, But it is a thing in of itself. And one of the things you need to understand, I'll, I'll talk about quercetin. And some person that's a smart person that knows there's quercetin in elderberries, so I take elderberry extract. Well, that's good for you. And so you're taking about, if you're taking a lot of elderberry, you're taking about 25 milligrams of quercetin. I'm taking 1,000 a day. 500 in the morning, 500 even, that's the maximum safe dose for long-term use. You can't take enough elderberry to get the level of ionophore action that's necessary to put enough zinc into your cells to really make a big difference here. I'm not saying it's not helpful. And if you're so close to doing it on your own, it could be that little thing that pushes it over. But most of us are not, and you'll hear more about that when we get to our piece on vitamin D today. Uh, next up, dear Jack, you don't have to read this on air, but, but I will. What would be the long game for an agorist business? Let's say somebody was hypothetically selling vegetables produced out of a garden along with buying wholesale vegetables from a farmer's market and fruit wholesalers at a produce stand in front of their home. Let's say someone was doing this with pretty good success. What would be that person's long game in that business? Seeing as how most of the sales were under the radar of the state, one generally couldn't eventually sell this business or really invest profits in the future. So what kind of mindset would you have toward this? Thanks for all you do, Tom in Florida. Um, I, I keep saying this when I talk about agorism. Please see this as a piece of your business, not your business. And so it's very likely that if you were hypothetically, this sounds like you are, selling vegetables and produce along with reselling wholesale, etc., that if you maximized the 90% of the tax code that gets you out of paying what the 10% says you have to pay, that you could be making very little money on paper even though you're making a lot of money you're putting in your pocket. That's more work, it's more effort, and it's inviting the beast into the, the party. So, the, the long game is, is this just a side hustle? Do you want to sell this business? Is this business something that will scale to the point where you would sell it to anybody anyway? Why would somebody buy this business from you when they could just basically roll it up themselves? They would do it for the customer base. Can you build the business and sell a customer base separately? Of course you can. You're not talking about building a lot of infrastructure here. 
The only value to the business you just described to me is a customer base. Customer base, right? So your customer database. Can you sell anything above table to that customer base? Can you make that a legitimate business? You know, think about, again, I keep going back to this. Every mob movie or mob series you've ever had, there's been a conversation with a police officer or a detective or somebody. Somebody that didn't like what the gangster was doing, right? And the guy says, hey, I'll run a legitimate business here. And they all do. You know, maybe they run a, a waste disposal business or something. That's the long game if you want to play at all in the world of the corporatocracy. If all you want to do is put a few thousand dollars a month or less into your pocket, and you have some other operation that is above board, like a job or a legitimate business, then it's just doing it until you don't want to do it anymore. And so it's a big it depends, and you got to determine for you what it depends upon. If I want to eventually sell a business, then I need some piece of that business to be above the table. I might even want to run the last year with all of it above the table to make my revenue look better so I could sell the business for more money. Because if you're going to sell a business, you're going to pay tax on that. Maybe, depending on how smart you are about how you structure it. The other thing is, well, why not sell it to another agorist? See, it all depends. Like, could you sell it to somebody who just was going to just pay you for it because they just valued it? It depends. The more you want to do with a business, the more it has to come above the table. Because there's certain things like lines of credit. If the business is going to need a line of credit, it needs reportable revenue. But a lot of businesses can operate on a very thin profit on paper, but they pay really well to the person running the business because you make a lot of things in your life that you would spend money on anyway into tax deductions. And that's not fraud. That's rigorously following the tax code under the advice of a CPA and or hopefully a tax attorney. Okay? That is not cheating. I am never advocating cheating. When you sell apples to somebody and don't report the revenue, that's a failure to report. That's how the IRS looks at it. And if you can do it, I don't care. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying I don't care that you did it. I could know you did it. I would never tell on you, and most people wouldn't either. You take that as you will. When you file something and say, I did this thing, and I have this expense against it, never cheat when you do that. It's, it's, an, it's analogous to this. Selling apples to your neighbor without reporting as the IRS is like not talking to the police. It's not exactly the same, but I'm drawing an analogy for you. It's very hard to get in trouble for not talking to the police. I don't want to answer your questions. I don't want to talk to you. Or I'm just, I know something and I'm not calling you. Very difficult to prosecute somebody for that. And, and likewise, it's very difficult for the IRS to bother with the fact that you sold your, your neighbor some apples for 20 bucks. I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying it's very difficult. If you report that you had an expense that doesn't exist and you get audited, it's like lying to the police on the record. It's like perjury. It's handled differently, but it works the same way. The fine, the cost, the penalty is about the fact that you deceived when you did it. You've committed tax fraud. Anytime you don't report something, 
Even if you get caught and have to pay the bill, I forgot. It was a bookkeeping error. I made a mistake. That doesn't mean that they're going to let you get away with it. It just means basically you're going to pay the money plus some, some fee for being late. Right? And we build risk into the financial equation. But if you willfully defraud, i.e. you put down an expense and there is no way to prove that expense ever occurred, now you've got a real problem. This is where businesses and lives get destroyed. So never think that what I'm saying is cheating. When I talk about working the 90% of the tax code that tells you how not to do it, I'm talking about, again, rigorous, religious-level, fanatical obsession with doing exactly what they say you can and are supposed to do. And then even making decisions based on foreknowledge. So if you know, if I do this thing this way, it becomes an expense. And if I do it that way, it's not. That is not fraud. That's not tax avoidance or evasion. That is a strategic accounting decision. So if you're thinking, wow, that's way above anything I want to know about this business, then your business probably is just, it doesn't really, there is no business. It's hypothetical, like you said, and your long game is, if you ever want to change that, you basically establish a business and dump the agorist piece that you need in that established business into it. You see how that works? Now, if you want a loan or something, they're going to say, well, you've only been in business a year. That's a trade-off. And like I said, with, 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 when, you're, when you're an agorist, everything that you do, you have to decide, does it benefit me to play by their rules in this space, this way, right now, or does it benefit me not to? And, and you have to determine what your long game is based on that calculus, and only you can do it. Uh, next up. Uh, hi, Jack. Remember you in the Jetta? Your roots of being prepared and protecting our liberties. You said the government will never let a good crisis go to waste. Actually, Rahm Emanuel said that. Right now, the country is caught up in fear and emotion. People are not thinking logically, whether it's COVID or racial tensions. The government will most likely use this to take more of our liberties. No, the government is actively using it right now and has already used it to take more of your liberties. And it's really important that you understand that. If you think that what you believe or feel or do right now is fighting the government from using this crisis to take more of your liberties. You are the fly in the window. Fighting something that you've already lost the battle. That's just to get out of the cities. That's where the tyranny is the worst. Flee to the countryside. I mean, I, I go out in my backyard every day. I look around for somebody from the government. They're not there. They don't exist. I have this whole world. You know, at least on the front side of my house, I can see the road and cars go by, and occasionally there's a sheriff there. He usually waves. Nice, friendly guy. One of them is actually uh, the young man who uh, my son was confirmed in the Methodist church. You do that as a teenager in the Methodist church. You have an older youth stand up for the younger youth, like kind of their advocate. And so one of the sheriff's deputies that patrols my area is the guy that did that for my son. So I have a pretty good relationship with him. Doesn't seem to care what I do. Really doesn't. Told me none of the other deputies care until I'm cooking meth with a, you know, like a, a meth cooker in my front yard or something. I'm just not going to hear from them. That even if they get a call from a neighbor that says, hey, they have really loud music or I don't like the way that their yard looks or anything like that, with where I live, their response is, I'm sorry. Maybe you should move. Maybe a little more diplomatically, but that's basically what they tell people that make the Karen complaints. We don't do that. 
We don't have any authority to do that. You live in an unincorporated part of the county. All the codes and shit like that don't exist. They even told one Karen, I suggest you form an HOA. She would tell them, nobody wants to. He said, I suggest you move. Because people here are allowed to live this way. No one's going to come here and tell me I have to put a mask on. No one bothers me when, when I, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, I had a taco truck come here. The taco truck people chose to wear masks while they prepared our tacos. I had 20 some odd people of my family here. I was told online when I posted the pictures of it, we were killing old people. I don't know how that works, but if you want to believe that, that's fine. But nobody bothered me. And there is a time to get out of the way. And I'm telling you, now is the time to get out of the way. And you need to accept the fact that our liberties are in decline. They have been in decline, and now they're in a more rapid decline. And what's going to happen is this thing will go away, this virus eventually, and people will either accept that it's gone and stop being afraid of it, or they won't. And some of the, the liberty that's been lost will come back, or it won't. You want me to tell you that it will, that we can fight, that we can take? I'm not going to bullshit you. I'm not going to lie to you. But what's going to happen is a further bifurcation of people. And the people that have made fear into their virtue will continue to magnify the fear. Whatever you see as virtuous, you will magnify. You will go out of your way to, to make more of it. Why wouldn't you? Not all virtue is virtue signaling. right? So if you believe that giving money to the poor is a virtuous thing, you'll give money to the poor. And if you find a way to be able to give more money to the poor and not destroy your own life, you'll do that. And if you find a way to convince others that giving money to the poor is a good thing to do, you'll do that. And if you see somebody doing it in a way that's really neat or cool, you'll share that they did it with other people. Not because you're signaling your virtue, but because you actually believe this is virtuous. So you'll magnify that what you see virtue in. Right? If you believe that being afraid, that cowering, that muzzling yourself, that driving around with a mask on like a moron by yourself, which is about as effective as wearing a condom alone at home in bed, and a condom made out of a paper towel, by the way, then you'll, you'll magnify that. So these people will either eventually stop being afraid of this thing. And that is actually possible. I didn't say probably. It's possible because most people eventually, if you scare them with something long enough, and whatever they're afraid of doesn't happen, they grow numb to it. That's one reason torture doesn't work really well. That is like to, for torture to work, work well, the, the, the person has to be willing to crack fast, or the torturer has to be skilled in moving the torture around, because eventually shock kicks in and the person just, just goes out. And they'll say anything to stop it, which could be a lie. Like, they might not know anything, and you're trying to get information, so they make a story up. And, and, and that dynamic plays out with things like fear-based paranoia. And then there's times it doesn't play out, where the Karens and the Kyles stay afraid. And even after there's a vaccine, now there's not enough people getting the vaccine. Now if you don't wear your mask, it'll come back. It'll come back and get you, Karen. It'll come back and get you, Kyle. And they'll tie into that primal fear. Because viruses and pandemics are real, and there's been times when they've taken out 5, 10, 15, 20% of the entire population of the planet, and it lives in our ancestral memory. And now the temptation to use that fear is too great for the people in power not to act. 
So it's not the government will most likely use this time to take more of our liberties. The government has taken how many of your liberties right now? This is from, from John Scott. How, how, how many liberties have you already lost? How many liberties have, can you go to Walmart without covering your face with a face diaper? Are you told where you can assemble and how many people you can assemble with, under what circumstances, for how long? Have restrictions been in place to tell you you can't go to places that are public property that you pay for? Have business owners been told you can't seat 50 people at your restaurant now, only 20? How more fundamental are our liberties than our right to peacefully assemble? And have you not seen people non-peacefully assembling, destroying cities, and being called virtuous by the people that are supposed to defend your right to liberty and property? Your liberty has been trashed by this. And you're not going to get it back by voting in November. You're not going to get it back by telling all the Karens and Kyles they're wrong. You're going to get it back by finding a place that you can live as free as possible and doing it. Because anything else is not inside your circle of control. And therefore, any belief that what you're doing really matters when you are outside of your circle of control and influence is a dream. And there's a place for dreaming. It's for creating a vision so you can accomplish something. And it's for your mind to reboot while you sleep. But when it comes to actually convincing yourself that you are doing something, you have no time for dreams. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up. I just wanted to do maybe a five-minute segment here on vitamin D and the role of vitamin D in the prevention of disease in general. And what I am thinking about is eventually coming to you maybe with an expert interview, but also probably a standalone show. Because sometimes I find that I can, I can do more to educate in a standalone show than I can do to educate with an expert. And that's because instead of coming at it as an expert, I come at it with somebody that wanted to know, learned, and is now repeating the information that I learned, which is probably more you know, more useful to the average person that wants to learn too than listening to an expert. So I think we can learn from both of those. So I'll try to do both. So on the expert, right now, if you said, who do you want to interview? I would want to interview a doctor by the name of Judson Somerville, who I started reading his book last night. It's called The Optimal Dose, Restore Your Health with the Power of Vitamin D. And I have a link in the show notes today. If you have Kindle Unlimited, you can get this book for free. Um, I read fast for full disclosure, but it was about 10 o'clock, uh, and my wife decided she wanted to go to sleep last night a little bit early, and I really didn't want to sleep, so I found this book, and I read it till about 11, and I'm about halfway done. So it's about a two-hour read for me to read the whole book. There's a lot of references in science and technical components to it, um, Dr. Sum Somerville really almost apologizes for that in this book by saying, I am going to be challenged. Uh, other doctors are not going to agree with me here. So I am putting maybe more technical information in this than the average reader really needs. Feel just free to skip over it. Me, I don't skip stuff like that. I want to know that when somebody says something's sourced, that it's sourced. The upshot is that The vitamin D deficiency is probably an epidemic in the United States. According to the government's definition of deficiency, 
that there are tons of people running around, and since they make enough vitamin D to not die or to have serious, quick serious health issues, because many of them have many serious health issues that can go back to this that people just don't even realize it is a vitamin D thing. But if you just randomly take 50 people off the street in the United States and test their, their blood levels for vitamin D, they will be at least mildly deficient according to the federal government. The next upshot is that number is way too low. And I've had a doctor recently comment on the blog and said, if you're taking vitamin D regularly, you need to have your blood serum checked because you can take too much of it. And I went, yeah, I agree. Everybody knows that. You can. Turns out it's really hard to do. And the number that's considered toxic is complete bullshit that a bunch of scientists back in the 20s and 30s pulled out of their ass because they had to have a number. And it works like this. It's about 100 units of vitamin D in the blood, and it, above that, it's considered toxic. And I don't remember if it's nanoliters or you know whatever it is, but it's about 100. And 80 to 100 is considered like the optimal amount. And I think it's less than 20 is like severely deficient. So it's not a wide range there if you really look at it that way. Well, it turns out that in the 20s and 30s, when they discovered vitamin D in rickets and a small amount would prevent rickets and they decided, oh, it's a vitamin, right, and they, they realized they could do that, they came at it as though it were a vitamin. Vitamin D is a hormone. It is not a vitamin in the traditional sense of a vitamin, even though it's what we call it. So most vitamins... Um, especially if they are fat-soluble and they can store in your fat, can be overdosed on and reach toxic levels fairly easily. So one example of that would be vitamin A. You can OD on vitamin A, and it's an inflammatory and cause cardiovascular problems. So they wanted to know, like, what is the, the, the maximum level? And they came up with a number that was based on some common sense and some research of about 300 units. So how do we get from 300 to 100? It was an arbitrary number they pulled out of their ass for a margin of safety because they didn't think you needed it anymore. It was a safety buffer with no, nothing to it other than, well, you know, if people stay under 100, they'll be fine. It's like if you thought the maximum weight limit that an elevator could handle was 3,000 pounds, and you just decided, well, we'll set it at 1,000 because people will cheat a little bit, and that'll put enough safety margin in it. But it was marketed as this is the number. So doctors were trained that if you have somebody with a serum level of vitamin D of like 110, that's really, really bad. Turns out, nothing wrong with it. The actual number, before it starts to become toxic, is about 400 units by the research that's available. So even the 300 was a little low on what it could be. And that, understand, it takes a lot of vitamin D to move the blood serum level very much. So the whole premise of what is deficient and what is excessive is wrong and it's arbitrary and it always has been and nothing has been done to correct this except for the research of people like Dr. Somerville. Now, I want to give you one more component to this and then I'm going to let you read the book and I'm not going to say any more because I don't want to give any advice on this. I'm just going to say that probably everybody should be taking D and everybody should probably be taking D3. And I think I take I take K2 D3. So K, K2 is a vitamin. And it's a good thing to put them together because the potential toxicity of vitamin D is hypercalcemia, meaning too much calcium in your blood. 
and K2 helps downregulate that. But I don't know what a toxic level of K2 is. So if I were to say it's okay to take 10,000 units of vitamin D3, and I believe that it is, and I think it's actually you could take significantly more, if that's a K2-D3 combination, I don't know at all any idea right now where the K becomes a problem. So you got to do your own research in this, okay? Just so I'm clear. But this doctor started giving, the, so a US RDA recommended daily ounce of vitamin D3, or D, they don't differentiate D2 and D3, but you should, and we'll get to that in a second, is about 600 to 800 IUs. Many people are now taking 5,000 IUs. This doctor, when he went and heard another doctor speak and kind of gave permission to up the dosage, started doing 5,000 IUs. Long duration in his patients. Checked their serum level, barely moved it. Seems like it requires significantly more. Like, just because you took it didn't mean it all goes in and gets And the body's constantly using it as well. Now, I know what you're screaming. My sunshine, my sunshine. Just get enough sunshine. The problem with that is multifaceted. You're not going to get enough sunshine, most of you. Many people, even if they get, quote, unquote, enough sunshine, no longer produce enough vitamin D for a variety of reasons I won't get into. But basically, we put on clothes and we went in buildings. That's the short answer in a way that we never did before. And then we're ignoring race because everybody gets offended when you talk about race and skin color anymore, about anything where you actually point to a difference. And I want you to think about the fact that there is a higher morbidity in African-Americans than Caucasians for COVID as I explain this. And it's not racist to identify biological differences and what they mean. The darker your skin the less vitamin D you can make with the same amount of sun. It's designed to be that way. Most people with darker pigmentation uh, evolved in regions of the planet that are more tropical and have longer uh, years of sunlight. The lighter your skin, the more Norwegian you are, etc., then you get into a situation where they evolve mostly in um, temperate regions and, and cold regions. I know you're thinking, Eskimos! The doctor that wrote this book explains that, the paradox there. I'm not going to go into that on time. But I'm going to tell you what I love about this book. Every time I had like, but what about? Two pages later, he says, I know you're asking what about. <laughs> like this guy, man. And he would slam dunk it, right? But here's the basic premise. We think that a place like New York gets less sun than a place like Panama. They actually get the same amount of sun. We learned this in permaculture. New York has these really long summer days and really short winter days. And Panama has day lengths that are about the same all year round. But if you put a solar collector on the ground and said record how many hours of sunlight you get for 365 days, the two places get roughly the same number of hours of sunlight. New York just gets most of theirs in the summer. Caucasian people, light-skinned people, have evolved to make surplus vitamin D during those long days, store it for the lean days of the winter and pull from it in winter to go and then deal with deficit and come back out of it and do it again in spring, summer again. We get some from diet and all, but the stuff we make with our skin, that's how we evolved. People with darker skin have evolved in climates that have shorter or, or, or longer dura long duration sun all year long, so they have produced more melanin to protect their skin from the constant sunlight, and since they can produce it year-round, they've evolved to produce as much as they need year-round. 
Then you take that person, put them in a temperate climate, and then you put them in a business suit, and then you put them in an office building, and you go, gee, why are they vitamin D deficient? So his basic premise is most people are probably not in our modern society with concerns about skin cancer and everything else going to get enough vitamin D without supplementation. And if you're supplementing, you need more than if you were making it for yourself because you can only absorb so much of it from supplementation. And I encourage every single one of you to look deeper into this. And I have recently looked at data that is yet unverified, but seems very credible that the number of cases of severe and, 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 um, and, and you know, lethal COVID that are vitamin D deficient is the vast majority. And the number of people who have COVID who have mild to asymptomatic cases, the vast majority of those people have sufficient vitamin D. Nobody's really testing for this, and I've said from the very beginning, if you did full blood panels on people, especially like kind, same age, right? Same age, same race, same health, and did really well, did really poorly, that some combination or some even single nutritional thing is going to jump out at you. When you see something like an 80 percentile swing, in morbidity cases and mild cases of vitamin D, it's jumping out at you. And I just encourage you to do your own research, be safe, work with a health practitioner that will do both a calcium-level blood test and a vitamin D-level blood test because you'll see a problem with the hypercalcemia from symptoms and the calcium levels before you see maybe the blood levels of vitamin D really indicate there's a problem. And in treating his patients, this man's been doing this for a long time now, he has not yet had a single patient go to anything approaching a hypercalcemia level. And he's treating patients that are old, overweight, etc. And so I don't want to give a number, but I'm just going to say it's more than 5,000, and I don't know how K plays into this yet. But I think that if, if we actually go down this path together, we're going to find that we have an epidemic of vitamin D deficiency. And it's responsible for, it's, it's at least co-responsible for many of our problems. And I think diet is a huge thing as well, uh, activity levels, et cetera. But it is, it is generally the case that for most people, you, I don't care how much sun you think you get, you will not get enough sun to get enough vitamin D in our world today. And the darker your skin, the more that's true. And you can be mad about that and say it's racist, but it's not. It's just, it's how biology works. And it's how we evolved as a species. And this doctor, he practices in Laredo, Texas. Not exactly a place deficient in sunlight. And the majority, the vast majority of his patients are vitamin D deficient. And when he started using vitamin D therapy with them, which is basically high-dose vitamin D, and he's not selling, he doesn't, you know, there's no line, there's no uh, Dr. Somerville's vitamin D3. Go get it. Go buy it. Go use it. He said his practice is a hell of a lot less busy because his patients are a lot healthier. So I just wanted to bring that to you, and I want you to think about that, and I want you to think about the fact that this whole thing, the sunshine, we do not get the sunshine that we got just a couple hundred years ago. We do not live outside the way that we used to, and we're constantly covering up more and more of ourselves. And then you add the shitty diet, you add the processed food. We probably have an epidemic there, and it's something that not – specifically related to COVID. It has a, like this book wasn't written in response to COVID. It was written several years ago.
with that, let's wrap things up. I want to remind you, one of the ways you can support our show is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I don't have an item of the day for you, but I want to remind you of a couple that I brought to you this week that are really cool deals that are still going on. Uh, one is the Anchor Soundcore Q10 Bluetooth headphones. They're still on sale for $30. That's, that's pretty awesome. And I want to read a comment to you um, that I got from somebody on the blog about them. I bought these a few weeks back and loved them. They went on sale while Jack was on vacation. I told my daughter about them since her headphones had died. She bought a pair. She loves them as well as I. I think at $40, they're good by $30. It's a steal. Thank you for sharing this project. Well, they're still on sale for $30. And they'll go back to $40 really quick. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes today for those today. And the knife that I've been talking about for the past couple days, the Moroccan off companion heavy duty, um, has gone up in price. It was selling for $15, bucks. now it's at 18 That's still a pretty good deal off the 25 it normally sells for. Uh, but I would say that the fact that it went up a few bucks means that the sale is fixing to completely end. It's one of those things that comes in cycles on Amazon. But you can always help us out doing your online shopping at tspaz.com no matter what you buy. Again, you can check the show notes for both of those today. And I think I'll have them in the Daily Mail for you today as well. So if you're not on the Daily Mail, consider subscribing. Go to the, the website. Click on subscribe, fill out a form. Once a day, you'll get a really simple text-based email um, with just snippets and links. That's all it is, and I'll never share your information. That brings us to our song of the day, and this is one I didn't think I was really going to like when I saw the title, um, and I saw who it was from. It's, it's by the Judds. It's technically Wyomi Judd and her, her mom, Naomi, um, and I guess it's after they were no longer the Judds, so I don't give a shit. It's the Judds. The two of them singing together. It's called Flies on the Butter. And I, I had never heard this song, and I just didn't think I would really like it. And I'm not a huge Judds fan either. Uh, but I really do like it. I really do like this song. John Adam picked a really great song. And it, um, for me, it actually brings out almost a, a level of biocentric timelessness if you really dig deep into it. We can actually kind of science geek out on a song like this. So it's a nostalgic song. Uh, Flies on the Butter is just one image of what things were like growing up for uh, for Wainomi, whatever the hell her name is, is a, is a little girl. Right? Um, Wainona Judd, I'm sorry. And, and basically, you know, being at her grandma's and there was a hole in the screen door and you'd see all these things and and these nostalgic memories, and it doesn't seem that long ago. And one of those was, you know, since the door had a hole in it, there'd be flies sometimes on the butter. And it's it's interesting that, like, when I really think about it that way, because I d didn't care for the titles, but there are little things like that in my memory that would seem, like, insignificant or useless to you. The smell of a tomato plant when it's warm outside and it gets hit with water is one for me. That's one for me. A spawning bass at the edge of a pond that's cleared out the weeds. It's another strong memory of my childhood because when I used to fish all these little ponds in Florida and eventually Pennsylvania, it was how I knew I could always, if I could see that, I could catch a bass. Right? I mean, there's, there's a dozen, and I'm sure for you, you have them as well. These things that when you were a kid, and sometimes, I mean, if you are 40, 50, 60 years of age, and you think back to like, When you, when you think about being seven, it seems like forever ago, but if you think about your flies on the butter, that was just yesterday. And then you realize, man, I'm so much closer to the eternal dirt nap than I am to that moment. And if this seems so close to me, how close am I to, to the final curtain? 
and you start to get in touch with immortality, it can be kind of scary. It shouldn't be. We should rejoice in the life that we have, no matter what stage we are in it. And we should, if you get into physics deeply enough, and, and the understanding of the non-existence of time, and this is where it can get kind of really geeked out science with something as simple as a song, you understand that there isn't a past and there isn't a future. There's only a now that becomes more now. That's it. There's a timelessness to all things. And the reason that that triggered memory can make you feel like it just happened is in the grand scheme of things it did just happen. It's just as real today as when it happened. But as we have continued to grow and develop, and we describe that in time, because we don't have another way to do it as humans, we're locked into a time-based mindset. As that has become more, and, and beca- as you've become more, it has faded into something that once was, that still is, but isn't. Does that sound like speak? I'm sorry. It's what it is. It's what it is. You are still the person that caught the bass or stood there and looked at the fly on the butter. You're still that person. And whatever you do today that you remember 10 years from now, you'll still be the person you are today. But you'll be more. But you'll be more. And when we worry about how long we have left to be the person that we are, we stop being the person that we're destined to be and who we're meant to be and what we're meant to be. And the, the, the real message of the song is you can't go home again. You can't go back to that place. It won't be there if you go back. Where I grew up, many of the places that I grew up around, they are not there anymore. If I go back, all is there for me is disappointment. And even if those places are there, they're different and the people are different. Even if the person that I remember is there, that's not the same person they were when I left. They've evolved and I've evolved. So the only thing that I can really do is cherish that piece of me that still is and work on building the piece of me that's becoming. That, as I always talk about, friends, is making the most of your dash. And with that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Old tin roof Leaves in the gutter Hole in the screen door Big as your fist And flies on the butter Mammal baking sugar cookies We were watching cartoons I heard her holler from the kitchen Which one of you youngins wants to lick the spoon? Yellow jackets on the watermelon A honeysuckle in the air Daddy turning on the sprinkler Us kids running through it in our underwear Old dog napping on the front porch His hair just a-twitching I feel asleep on granddaddy's lap To the sound of his pocket watch a-ticking Whoa, whoa, doesn't seem like it was all that long ago. 
can dream about it now and then But you can't go home again mm-hmm. Yeah, my best friend Jenny Set up the back of your can Stole one of mama's mason jars Poked holes in the lid and made a firefly lamp me and Billy Monroe Sneaking down by the river And I'm still haunted by the taste of the kiss I was too scared to give him Whoa, whoa Doesn't seem like it was all that long ago Top road, a faded yellow center line. It can take you back to the place, but it can't take you back in time. Whoa, whoa, it doesn't seem like it was all that long ago. Thank you. 